quite a bit of it. I'm carrying all this stuff with me. And uh, for those that aren't aware of it, we've been on this journey of grace. It's a denominational uh, material that we're working through. Uh, of course, left to our discretion on how we want to preach it and share it. Uh, but we have been working on this concept as discipleship, as a journey of grace. Discipleship as a journey of grace. And today we've heard our passage of scripture. And, and the idea of our passage of scripture today, the title is Different Stories. Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, different stories, but the need is the same. And so one of the things that, uh, for those that weren't here last week, uh, we talked last week uh, about the fact of God's uh, grace. Not moving forward there. Just turn it on. It is on. I did turn it on here. <laughs> it's frozen. It's fro the frozen chosen. No, it's frozen. Um, and so we are talking about grace. And you guys remember what we said about grace? God's, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. Say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. That is really this concept of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. You haven't done anything? That's way, way ahead. It's, it would be the second slide. They're pulling it up. Whatever's going on there today. So it's, it's God's grace. We haven't worked for it. We don't deserve it. It is unmerited. Thanks. Perfect. Um, and, and so there's this whole concept. We've been looking at that. And then last week we talked about what kind of grace? Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Now that's a theological term. But actually what it is is God's seeking grace. God's grace that comes before salvation. God comes to seek us out. We talked about, I, I love that picture. I've used it often in my prayer. Like a moth is wooed to a light or a flame. God's seeking grace woos us, goes before, and draws us to God, draws us to a relationship with God. Many people have said that we know that something is missing within us. And so God comes and awakens our spirits. The, so we can respond to him. And so today, we are looking at God's saving grace. And, and so it, how God saves us. And that's one of the things that we're looking at today. Uh, one of the interesting things is, we talked about that. This will come up. God's provenient grace, which is the way. God's uh, saving grace, which is the truth. Uh, God's um, sanctifying grace, we'll look at next week, the life. We said that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Often in the church when we talk about grace, we're thinking about a thing, a substance, and what we're saying today, what we've been working through, grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now we're going complete opposite direction. I talked about Pastor Mike and the way he thinks. Now look at the way I think. Power Rangers. Now that dates me, right? Because one of our sons was really into it. He wasn't very big. And he would go on, Power Rangers. <laughs> and it's a good thing he's not here today because he wouldn't appreciate me talking about it. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there was Morphin Time. Remember that? Power Rangers and Morphin Time. I see a lot of you, you looked 
videos that Pastor Mike showed in his video, and you didn't have a clue what that was. And some of you are looking at me now saying, I don't have a clue what Power Rangers are. But anyway, there was the statement, it's morphin time, they would say. And, and I want us to realize today that when we're looking at God's saving grace, that's a good term. It is morphing. It is morphing time. And here's another way I think. Some of you are too old for that. You remember the old Visa machines? Oh, some of you are old enough, then you do. You know, uh, I, I think about, often we look at salvation as transactional. Now, that's another theological term. And when I was thinking of transaction, they used to say a visa transaction. You had to put the card in that little machine, and there was those pieces of paper, remember? And you had to do what? That transaction, right? And then you get your piece, and they get a piece, and they send somewhere a piece of paper. And I guess they get paid six months later, whatever they had over. That's why they don't have them anymore. That's why they don't have them anymore. Now it's just tap. You tap it. Uh, right? But this is, and, and so why was I thinking of that? Often, if we're not careful, we look at salvation as a transaction. What do I mean by that? Well, well, my, my debt's been paid. That's it. My debt's been paid. I got my ticket into heaven. Hallelujah. It's a transaction. Now, I want to say to you, and hear me right, Pastor Betty didn't say, <laughs> praise God our debts have been paid, hallelujah. And praise God, we're on our way to heaven, hallelujah. Hear me right. But that is not all what salvation is. Salvation is so much more than just a one-time transaction. It is about morphine time. It is about transformation. And so salvation is to be seen holistically. Do you know the word shalom? In, in, in Hebrew, when we wish you shalom, Pastor Mike often signs shalom to you. Uh, shalom, the word peace in Hebrew, is, is may you be what? Whole. May you be whole. May you know wholeness. And, and, and so when we're thinking of salvation, we need to move beyond just transactional Theology, and we need to move into seeing the saving grace as something that is holistic, something that changes us, something that transforms us. We need to kind of back up, though, because we need to start. Uh, where does it start from? And it starts, we have to talk about a word that nobody ever wants to talk about, uh, is sin. We'll read that scripture in a minute. We need to talk today a little bit about sin, because what are we being saved from? Because <laughs> what's the point? What's the point of salvation if we don't know what we're being saved from? And, and so in the church today, we don't talk a lot about sin. One of the reasons why we don't talk a lot about sin is moralism is on the rise. See, I, I'm a good person. I, I'm a really good person. Well, not always, but I'm a pretty good person, especially when I compare myself to some other people. I'm pretty good. And, and I'm so good that my good outweighs my bad, and so on Judgment Day, God is going to look at me and say, well, your good is better than your bad, so guess what? Enter in. That's moralism. That is what our world is teaching. And so if we're teaching and it's on the rise and it's all around us, and if you ask people, 70, 80% believe, uh, even in the U.S., the numbers that they did, 77% of Americans believe they're going to heaven because we believe in moralism. God's not going to turn anyone away. 
He's just going to let everyone in, right? And it's just it's about your good. It's just those really, really bad people that don't have any good on their account that, you know, they go to that other place. And so moralism is on the rise. And so if there's moralism is on the rise, and that's really our mindset, why do I need salvation? I don't need salvation because we're all going anyway. Lie. Terrible lie. I believe a lie of the enemy. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to understand what we teach and what we believe. And, and the reason why I need salvation, the reason why you need saving grace today is because it started all with sin. And sin is still around us. And you know the one thing about sin? It's leveling. Uh, there is level, as we say, level ground at the cross. We're all sinners. Do you know that today? And it doesn't matter if I've been raised in the church my whole life. I came the same way that you did. We're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace. Uh, sometimes, years ago, we were in a little church, and a neighbor was there, and we were trying to invite him to church, and he said, why would I go to that church? I already feel bad. I don't want to feel any worse. And he said, well, they're all the holy rollers in there. You know, they're all uh, holier than thou. They, they wouldn't accept me. I wouldn't be allowed there. See, isn't that a terrible message that the church has shared with those outside? The truth of it is we are all sinners Amen. saved by grace. We need God's saving grace. And praise God for his saving grace. And so we're all at the same level, all of humanity. And we also know that sin, as we see in our world today, is definitely destructive. And so if we come from that premise, then we realize moralism is not going to save us. Good intentions are not going to save us. Uh, nice efforts are not going to save us. It is only God's grace that reaches in and touches us and saves us. I love this passage from Ephesians. That is the actual, one of the other uh, versions of it, uh, translations of it, but I have it in the message, and we used it the last couple of weeks, but this is what Paul said to the church in Ephesus. Uh, now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we, what we've done and that we did the whole thing. No. We neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us in Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. You know that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Remember that one? Amazing Grace, how sweet that... talking about today. And he's like, well, thanks, Pastor. The day that I come to church, you're talking about sin. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Sin is rebellion. Sin is ultimately rebellion. It's rebellion against God. 
Wesley, John Wesley, said a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. We were taught that back in Bible school, right from the beginning. A voluntary transgression against a known law of God. You know what it is? God has set boundaries for us to protect us and keep us. And just like my boys, when they were small, would do this with every boundary, uh, we tend to do the same with God, don't we? God puts a boundary, a healthy boundary, and what do we want to do? We want to step over it. We want to push out. Don't you tell me what to do. Why are there all these rules and regulations? I, I think one of the greatest stories, the parable of this rebellion, is the parable of the prodigal son. It's not about greed. It's about rebellion. The prodigal son turned around and said to his father, basically he says to his father, I wish you were dead because give me my inheritance now and I'm out of this place. Like the young guy at the beginning song being dragged to church on a Sunday and a Wednesday night. Don't you tell me what to do. I, I'm my own man. I want, I'm my own woman. I'm out of here. And so the prodigal son left the father's house, squandered his life, but praise God for God's saving grace. The parable tells us that the father was waiting on the road to receive the son when he would return home. Isaiah tells us, like all, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. I like what James 4, 17 kind of brings this out. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's what we're talking about here. It is rebellion. Rebellion are the sins of commission. I'm doing some things I know I shouldn't do. So therefore, if I know it, then that's why I'm guilty. <laughs> but also there's the sins of omission. <clears throat> Failing to do what I know I should do. Either way, ultimately, it's about rebellion. Sin is also enslavement. The original word says that it's about missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. I just want you to have a picture with uh, a bow and arrows, and you're down shooting down the other end of the gym, which I had the fun of doing with Kelly before and didn't do a very good job of it. And I was missing the mark when I was trying to shoot that arrow. It just wasn't hitting that's what the Greek word is trying to say to us, sin is. Sin is that you're trying as best as you can to hit that mark and you're always missing. You're always messing up. Because ultimately, we are enslaved to it. It is our condition. It is our nature. That's why we use the term sinful. We are sinful. We're fallen. That's another word we use. We're all fallen. We're fallen because back Adam and Eve were the first ones, weren't they, who fell from God's plans and purposes. And the truth of it is we all have. And we probably would have done the same if we were the first. And so there is this aspect of, of not making the mark. Uh, Romans, the passage in Romans tells us, uh, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a religious man, go into Romans chapter 7, and he is so conflicted, and he is so, diff you know, uh, having these difficulties to understand what's going on with him. Verse 19, he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then he says, what a wretched man that I am. That's where that song, the word wretch, comes from in Amazing Grace. Apostle Paul called himself a wretch. He couldn't do what he wanted to do. He was enslaved to sin. 
And the truth of it is, we all are. Oh, I remember the party days. Oh, not you, Pastor Betty. You've been a saint all your life. Can you see my halo? No. <laughs> Far from it. I remember the partying days. Sin starts out. Fun. We wouldn't get into it if it wasn't fun. That's what draws us into it. This is fun. I, on my own. I want to experience this. And so, you know, it's fun, right, to start off partying, but drunkenness, you find out, is not fun. And definitely hangovers are not fun. Uh, and alcoholism as an addiction is not fun. Car accidents are not fun. Losing your license is not fun. Destroyed marriages are not fun. Abused spouses and children are not fun. Sin is a vicious cycle that takes us into destruction. It starts off as fun. But it sure doesn't end that way. We are enslaved to sin, and our wishful thinking and good intentions cannot change that situation. Uh, I remember Pastor Mike and I, we were working in Milan, Italy, working with, well, we started in Switzerland already, but as we moved to Italy, God opened that door even more, and we were working with those under addictions. We were working with those with heroin addictions, on the worst of the worst. And uh, you would see how, how it started out at a party one night, or somebody suggested they try it. And before you knew it, they were in a full-blown addiction, so much so that they're now living on the streets they're finding themselves making decisions and doing things that they never dreamed themselves would find themselves doing for their next fix. It, it was a terrible, terrible mess. And we would come in and, and try to uh, work with them and help them in the midst of all that they were going through. There was one gentleman in, in particular, I've mentioned his story once before, but uh, I won't give his name today, we'll call him George. George the Italian. Actually, Giorgio. Let's call him Giorgio. That's more appropriate for Italian. And Giorgio was raised in the church. Raised by godly parents. Went to church every Sunday. Uh, and, and now he was in this full-blown addiction. And Giorgio, uh, the church didn't have any space for him anymore because Giorgio had just, well, he burned, he blazed the trail behind him. And his parents had really given up, even believing parents had given up on him because it just got so far, they didn't know what to do. And I remember him in our little living room weeping with us and, and, and us asking us to pray for him and us praying with him. And do you know what? I, it came to a point where Giorgio was actually praying himself to be set free from the addiction. And I want to be honest, you know the truth, and this is why when you work with people right in their need, you realize how God's saving grace works. Because Giorgio was not free of heroin, but yet he had accepted Christ back into his life and heart. He accepted Christ back into his heart and life, and yet was still needing a physical fix. And uh, it just shows you the things that happen to people's lives, how the sin as enslavement can destroy people and destroy lives. It doesn't start that way. It starts off in fun. But unfortunately... As we'll see this next point, sin is also estrangement. 
Sin is something that goes wrong in a relationship. Sin, sin causes that rebellion. Uh, sin causes enslavement. Sin breaks relationships. And the greatest relationship it breaks is our relationship with the Father. I've often said to people, our sin breaks the Father's heart. The Father loves us. As we already said about the parable son, he's on the road waiting for us to return home. It breaks his heart that sin separates us from God. Sin brings fear and guilt and shame. Sin makes enemies out of friends. Sin turns intimacy into hostility. Sin breaks friendship and fellowship. And so we need to move on this morning, but we can see that sin is rebellion and enslavement and estrangement. Just look at this pandemic. I'm not talking about those sick. I'm not talking about those in hospital. I'm talking about the greed. And, and the attitudes and the selfishness and just all that we've seen. And we've seen that we talked about my report on, on Wednesday night said it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. We're seeing some of the worst in people in the midst of this pandemic. There's no other word for it but sin. Jesus warned us, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Our passage today, our passage of scripture today, is the story of two men. It's an, it's an example of, of two men, two different men, two different walks of life, and yet the same need. Two stories and the same need. Do you know today, if we were to go around, if we had the time to hear everyone's story, everyone's story here would be completely different. Completely different. But I want to say to you today, even as Kenny was teaching, I only got the end of the Sunday school class, the need in this place <laughs> is all the same. We need saving grace. We see the first story of the blind beggar. And Mark's Gospel, actually, we read it in Luke, but Mark's Gospel even gives us the name, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, the son of Theus. And you know what's interesting? Often we read these stories and we lose sight that that's somebody's son. That's a person. That's a story. That's a real life here that we're reading in God's Word. And, and even when we look at what's going on around us, it's somebody's son. <laughs> it's, it's a person who has value and is important Last week, we looked at what does it mean to be spiritually dead, that God's provenient grace, seeking grace, has to come and enliven us. Today, we're looking at what does it mean to be spiritually blind, to not know the truth. The truth can be right in front of us, and yet we don't see it. And so these two men have two different statuses in life. We see one is poor versus wealthy. One is weak versus powerful but the truth of it today is the same need is there. They need a Savior. Amazing grace. Oh boy, you're on the ball today. Amazing grace. I'm going to say it again. We're not moving on until we get it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Yeah, there we go. That saved a wretch like, like me. Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was passing by. And so he shouted. Have mercy on me. <laughs> and guess what everyone around them, the religious told them to do? Shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. 
The master doesn't want to be bothered with you, you blind person, you beggar. I love what the passage says. Jesus, it tells us first that he shouted all the louder, have mercy on me. But you know what I love it says? Jesus heard him. Do you realize there's a crowd? There's noise going all around. And Jesus heard his cry for mercy over the crowd. And anytime somebody cries for mercy and says, Jesus, would you have mercy on me? Jesus hears that cry. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm getting excited about it. He hears him and he wants him brought to him. And so this blind beggar is brought to Jesus. And Jesus asks an important question. And maybe it's a question that he would ask you today. What do you want me to do for you? And he says, let me see again. Jesus says, receive your sight. But look what else he says. Your faith has saved you. Oh, there's a lot of people on the prayer chain and they'll call pastor. Pastor, pray for so-and-so because they're ill and they need to be healed. Yes, but the greatest statement that God could ever make over a life and his saving grace is your faith has saved you. That's really what we're about as a church. I, I, I want to show compassion and love to people. I want to pray for people. I want to pray for healing. I want to see miracles break forth in God's house. But what we're really here about is God's saving grace. A life that's been changed and transformed. It is morphin' time. Luke puts the story of Zacchaeus right after, right after this. It's so wonderful because we're told that Bartimaeus is praising God and he's praising God so wonderfully that all the people around are praising because they've seen this transformation, this saving grace, how it's hit Bartimaeus. And then Luke does something very, very special here. He gives us the story of Zacchaeus right beside it. It is intentional because he's trying to say, okay, this man who was physically blind received his sight, but let me show you a man who is spiritually blind. And he too will receive his spiritual sight. See, Zacchaeus had it all, it seemed. He was a tax collector, not just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. And so Jesus is now in the town of Jericho, and he's passing through. Zacchaeus does something completely different. He doesn't shout out, uh, Jesus, have mercy on me. He's not even concerned about Jesus' mercy. But he does want to see what's going on. And so we're told that he goes up in a sycamore fig tree. To be able to see Jesus pass by. Now a lot of us believe that the reason for that is because he's short. Well the scripture tells us that. But also <clears throat> in a fig tree you could hide. And also he's up there because we need to realize that Zacchaeus the chief tax collector is an outcast. Is a person that people would turn their back on. Because why? He was a fraud. He defrauded his own people. As a chief tax collector, he basically got in bed with the Romans. The Romans were paying him to take the taxes from his own people. And as he took the taxes from his own people, he was charging them more and putting the money in his own pocket to get wealthy. So Zacchaeus didn't have a lot of friends. Zacchaeus would not, his people and his townspeople would not want him around. And so Zacchaeus goes up into the tree to see Jesus, but also to hide from everyone else. Because for Zacchaeus, what is important is wealth and money. It's about wealth and money. That's my God. I'm going to keep making money, and it doesn't matter how I make it and who 
multiply hurt in the meantime. Doesn't that sound like our world around us? And so he doesn't cry out to Jesus. Jesus begins to pass by. But you know what's beautiful in this passage? Jesus looks up. Jesus stops. He looks up. He sees Zacchaeus. And he calls him by name. Have you ever had God call you by name? God's saving grace. Calling us out by name. Zacchaeus thought Jesus wouldn't be interested in him. He thought he had fallen too far from God's saving grace. But Jesus stops right there in the tracks. And he calls, he looks up to Zacchaeus. And he calls him by name. And he says something pretty profound here. What does he say to him? He says, um, I intended to visit your house today. Isn't that, to me, that's an amazing passage of scripture. I shared a little bit my story back last week, how God moved in our household. But isn't that amazing that God would want to enter into our homes? Oh, not just the homes of the godly and the righteous, and the ones who have it all together, but the homes of those who don't. Jesus wanted to enter Zacchaeus' home and to have fellowship with him. That's God's saving grace. God wants to enter all the homes this morning of West Prince. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. I pray for that. That God wants to enter in all, all the homes of West Prince. He wants to enter in all of our homes. God wants to be welcome in our home and at our table. You know, so much so that the ones that were watching were shocked that Jesus would go to his home. And so we see that salvation hits Zacchaeus' home, and he plans to pay back all the poor, and even pay back four times those that he defrauded, and that is what we call today restitution. And Jesus makes a powerful statement, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek out and serve the lost. Verse 10, I love that scripture. And so we see two men, very different men, but the same need. They need a Savior. We're all different, as we said this morning, but we all need God's saving grace. It is so holistic. It is so transformative. There is a phrase you'll hear evangelicals use over and over again about saving grace. It's not moralism. It is something that changes me from the outside in and begins to change me and transform me in such a way that we use the term born again. Born anew. Spiritual birth. Whatever way you want to put it. But it means that something new is bubbling up inside of me, regenerating me, changing me, transforming me, that I'm not the same person I was. Amen. That's God's saving grace. Don't settle for just a transaction. My debt is paid and I got a ticket. That's all it is. No, my friends, it is so much more than that. It is a way of life. It frees me. It fills me with his love. It calls me and adopts me into his family. And I am a child of God, a child of the king. It is life-changing. Amazing grace. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Romans 6 tell us the truth. 
For the wages of sin, we talked about sin, is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, it's morphine time. It always is. God's saving grace comes knocking and seeking us, wanting to change us and transform us, move us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from condemnation to acceptance, from alienation to adoption. If we have ever presented God's grace in another way, God help the church and forgive us if we have. God loves us, has a purpose and a plan for us, wants us to live life to the full, wants us to be all that he's created us to be, wants to change us and transform us. Praise God for his saving grace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. This is not his name, but we'll call him Giorgio. This is Giorgio. It's a few years. He hasn't got a, I haven't got a newer picture of him. It's a few years ago. But praise God, Giorgio, yes, still in addiction, gives his heart to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, working in his heart and life, his saving grace, begins to change Giorgio so much that he no longer needs heroin and is actually set free from the addiction. Praise God. There's not too many praises in the church today. Hallelujah. A life changed and set free from an addiction. Amen. There's one. God is able to do that. God's able to change and transform. And I believe that because I've seen it time and time again. And you know what? He started to go back to his church. He didn't come to our church. Went back to his church. And he began to worship God and enter back into the sanctuary and to be with everyone. And his family had a son that was lost, is now home, and sitting in church. Well, it wasn't long that he was sitting in church and God's call hit him. And he went off to prepare for ministry. And today he's a pastor in Italy. He thought at one point that God, because of uh, HIV and his friends who died of AIDS, that he could never marry. If his, it, it, God, would, how would God send him a Christian wife if she knew what he had done in his past life? And yet God sent him a godly wife. And shortly after that, they had their daughter. And today he is pastoring in Italy. What do we call that? That's God's saving grace. That's able to change and transform. And why do I share that story? Because if he can touch a heroin addict and set him free from that addiction, then he can touch any of us. And set us free, whatever we're going through, whatever we're embarrassed, whatever we're ashamed of, whatever we're struggling with, God wants to set us free today. God's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Praise God. Praise God for his saving grace. Yes, we all are on the same level. We're all sinners. But praise God today in this church, we're on the same ground, able to be saved by his amazing grace. Would you stand with us? as we sing this great song of the church.